You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. Hey, Colorado, Chris Lopez here, and we have a great guest today who's going to talk about the Lazy 1031 Exchange. So as you know, you may be one of these investors that ask us, we've talked to, and they say, hey, I've got all this equity in my Denver or my Colorado Springs rental property. What can I do with it to maximize it? Now, it used to be a lot of 1031 trade-ups or refi and buys. Well, the market has shifted. That's a lot tougher. So that means other opportunities appear. And so we're going to talk about some advanced ways to do that, plus some alternative asset classes you can 1031 into uh, as you get out of your rental properties. And I'm joined by my co-host, Jenny Bayless. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Chris. I am very excited for this podcast and uh, thank you for teeing it up. Um, our guest is Thomas Costelli, who is a real estate investor, and a CPA, so a fantastic combination. And he's also the host of the Tax Smart Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you both today. Yeah, we're really excited. And you know, a couple months ago, I know Jenny attended one of your podcasts, or not podcast, your webinar is called the Lazy 1031 Exchange. Jenny, can you, can, can you fill us in on that and then why we had to have Thomas on the show? Yeah, I, I love this because um, I actually inadvertently did it last year um, <laughs> for 2022, but I think that it's a fantastic option for people that perhaps want to take some chips off of the table and don't want to be up against a time crunch that a 1031 puts them into. Um, and as we know, that can kind of create some bad decision-making process when the, when the clock is ticking. So I just love that um, the options that the Lazy 1031 provides people is just another alternative for them to think through as they make their decisions. So Thomas, what is the Lazy 1031? How do we even start attacking this question? Okay, great. I mean, so the, the late, that, that's a great question. So the Lazy 1031 Exchange is a name for a strategy that has actually been around for since the 80s, um, but has, thanks to bonus depreciation, which I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit deeper, has really gained a lot of traction and a lot of popularity over the last few years since uh, since the tail end of 2017. So I guess the, the best way to break it down is to start with a quick overview of the passive activity rules and because that that plays the found that plays a big role, so that's kind of the foundation of this strategy. So uh, I'll give the quick overview. So uh, back in uh, before 1986, you were able just to buy a rental property, and uh, these rental properties would typically generate losses thanks to a non-cash expense called depreciation, which only really exists on paper. Uh, so in other words, what that could allow you to do is that can allow you to have a property that you're generating positive cash flow from. But yet you're telling the IRS and the state tax authorities that you're losing money. And um, it, that's thanks to this depreciation expense. So then the Tax Reform Act of 1986 came about. And uh, what that did is introduce something called Section 469 of the tax code, the passive activity rules, which made losses from rental activities passive by default. And what that meant was, is that you can no longer take... like. Before this, you could just take these losses and use it to offset your W-2 or perhaps your active business income, really no questions asked. But what the passive activity rules did is say all rental activities are passive by default, and that means that these losses can no longer 
offset your active income. They can only offset other passive income, which for many investors is their rental income or gains on the sale of their rental properties. So uh, there is something called reps that would the real estate professional status that was later introduced that could allow people who work full time in real estate to offset their active income. But if you're not working full time in real estate, that's not really relevant. So the question really becomes, how can you best maximize these passive losses? So what ends up happening is when you buy that rental property, uh, if you do something called a cost segregation study, what that will do for you. So let let me back up real quick and break it down like this. So when you buy a property, it's not just the house. It's not just the walls. You have all these various components within that property, things like light fixtures, appliances. You might have land improvements like landscaping, uh, pools, sheds, things of that nature. And when you, when you, buy that property, everything is lumped into one bucket. It's usually 27 and a half years for residential property. So that means that you, the, your property is effectively depreciated 127.5. So just a little bit every year. And while that can help shelter a lot of your rental income from tax, it's not going to usually produce sizable losses for you. But now, uh, thanks to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of seven, 2017, we now have something called bonus depreciation, which allows you to significantly accelerate depreciation on a property with a class life of less than 20 years. So what a cost segregation study allows you to do is it basically someone comes down to your property or sometimes software can do it for you. And it's going to give you a report of the various components of your property. So for residential real estate, you're going to have 27 and a half years. You're going to have 15 year property. You might have a little bit of seven year property or five and then five year property. And depending, it's all property dependent, market dependent, depending on where you are, but usually somewhere between 20 to 30% of your property's value can be reallocated into this five, seven, and 15 year bucket and bonus depreciated. Now here where we are in 2024, bonus depreciation is 60%. So I'll give you an example of that look like. Now in 2023, it was 80%. So let's just say, for example, you bought a $500,000 property and let's just call, let's just say that, so land is never depreciated. So something I should, should mention there. So we always have to allocate a land value to your mm-hmm. property. Now that will be determined be, usually based on the property tax card or an independent third-party appraisal. But for the sake of, of this example, we'll, we'll, we'll assume that 80% is allocated to the actual building itself. That's actually a pretty common example we see around here in, in Denver and Springs. I mean, I, I was actually looking at uh, a rental property day with a, with a client and her property was 79%. So 80% is <laughs> perfect for our audience here. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a very common example. It's a very common number and sometimes it, it, it aligns. So if we go with the 80%, that means you have $400,000 in uh, the building value. And let's just take right down the middle that 25% of that is going to be eligible for bonus depreciation. So that's going to give you on that $400,000 property, that's going to give you $100,000 as bonus depreciation eligible. Now we're going to go ahead and we're going to take uh, we're going to take 80, uh, 60% of that, excuse me, we're in 2024. So that's going to give you a depreciation deduction in that first year of $60,000. Now, not to get too technical with a little bit of other stuff, but basically uh, there's going to be other, the the remaining 40% will start depreciating that you didn't take in bonus depreciation and the other and 27 and a half year, 0.5 year will still start to depreciate. So it's really going to come out to be around uh, somewhere around 68.5K, but that's going to be the amount, that's going to be the amount of 
basically depreciation you're getting in that first year, and that's usually going to cause a sizable loss on your property. So you might actually make money, and that's awesome. But you're going to tell the IRS you have this big loss. Now the question is, what happens to this big loss? Well, the past activity rules state that it's first going to offset any passive income that you might have for the year. So if you have passive rental income, positive rental income that might be being thrown off of other properties, it's going to help you offset that passive income so you're not paying tax on your rental income. Now, uh, if you did sell any properties, it can help offset the gain. That's We'll get more into that in a second. That is the lazy 1031 exchange. But if you're not using it, if you're not using these passive losses, you don't have enough passive income, these losses don't just disappear. Uh, they get suspended and carried forward to your next year's tax return. And oftentimes what happens is if you're in this situation where you're, you're, you're not able to use these passive losses every year, they start to accumulate. Can I jump in here to help? Like, because yep. Jen and I are following you and you're, and this is, you know, knowledge we've learned a long time. And I've talked to a lot of clients about this. I, I want to like pause here to make sure people don't get lost because we get this bonus appreciation. Uh, and let's just say it's at $60,000 to keep it simple. Now, if I'm a rep status from a real estate professional status, but Jenny is not, I can use all the depreciation across any income, correct? Right. If you have the real estate professional status, if you spend yep. more than 750 hours and more than half of your total working time working in real estate, you can take those losses, the $60,000 in losses, use it to offset your W-2, your active business, or your other non-passive income. And uh, you'd be able to use that in that case. Yeah. yeah, I would say most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, there are exceptions. Um, they have a day job, so they are not rep status. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that. So if you have a day job, pay a special attention because this is a really cool trick that you'll be able to utilize. Yeah. And so it's where like, you know, uh, it's not like if you don't use it, you lose it. That's not the case. But that's where it depends. Hey, depending on how you're categorized, you may be able to use it all in one year. But if not, this tees up into what you were saying, where it'll start carrying forward. And I have this conversation a lot, so I want people to follow along because, like, we see too many people leaving money on the table for to Uncle Sam. Right. Absolutely. So if you're not able to use it, it's going to carry forward. And and the good thing about that is that it can help you shelter future rental income taxes. The first thing it does for you, um, which is phenomenal. Uh, but the second thing, and often what we've seen over the last few years be really powerful, is what's become known as the lazy 1031 exchange. So to preface the, late, the 1031 exchange, so usually when you do a 1031 exchange, you have to go to a qualified intermediary. They have to receive the funds at, at the closing table. Then you have a 45-day window to identify typically three properties or up to three properties that you might acquire. And you have a total of 180 days, just about six months or so, to actually acquire the next property. And that allows you to defer your capital gain down the line. But those timelines are pretty tight, right? It's pretty tough to do that. So where the lazy 1031 exchange comes in is it allows you to sell your property. And then you can use the suspended passive losses that you had previously, if you had any, to start offsetting that capital gain on sale. Um, if you can't, if you don't have enough suspended passive losses, and these can be found just, by the way, on form 8582 of your tax return. That's where you could find your suspended passive losses. Now, if you don't have enough, what you can do is you can go and invest into another property in that same year. So this is the key to this strategy. It has to be in the same taxable year. So for in 2024, you're looking at between the, if you sell property within 2024, you need to acquire this property anywhere between 1124 and one. Uh, to 1231 2024. So same taxable year. Then you can go do the cost segregation study on that new property. Uh, use the depreciation, the losses that are generated on this new property to offset 
the gains on the property you just sold. And if you buy a large enough property and you have enough losses that are able to offset the gain, you don't pay taxes on the gain and you don't need to use a 1031 exchange. Now, buying a rental property is one way to do that. It's one way to generate these losses. Um, there are other ways we could dive into, other ways to drive and I, I want to talk about those, but I, I before we talk about that, I do want to talk about some like strategy because um, you know Jenny said she inadvertently did this, and we have clients doing this. So like, you know, I, I think a way to really you know maximize the trends, especially here in Colorado, is you know we're very seasonal. Is the best time to sell a property is the springtime. We're going to get the most buyers in the door and get top dollar for your property. So like, if someone were to do this in, in the springtime, um, like list your property in February, March, or April no tenant in there, you know, sell it to an owner occupant. And then the best time to buy a property is usually fall or late winter when there's the least amount of demand. So if an investor really wants to go out there and, you know, sell the highest possible at the sell highest possible price and buy at the lowest possible price, that's the way I, one of the ways I would attack it. And Jen, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on there or if that's actually what you did. So I accidentally did it because, um, I wasn't planning on purchasing a subsequent property. So I sold one property. I had about, we'll say a hundred and change in, in gain and recapture. Um, and then I ended up finding a multifamily that I really liked, um, and, and purchased that and did a cost seg on it. Um, so they identified about 150 K, um, in the cost seg study. So that essentially wiped out my gain uh, from the prior sale. So I, I liked it because I did not feel like I was on the clock. Um, I don't like to make fast choices. Anyone who knows me knows that it takes me forever to think through anything. Um, so, you know, just have, have feeling rushed that, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to pay taxes on this gain. Like that would just lead me to make a poor decision in my my opinion. That's just kind of how I am. So I liked that option of just kind of being able to be done with property A, you know, paid, you know, I essentially, you know, paid the gains or whatever through, or I guess they went into that bucket. And then um, when I did the cost seg, it wiped it out. So I didn't actually have to write a check at the end of the year. So um, that's, I think, a pretty phenomenal strategy. And then, you know, on top of that, I think that it's also interesting if you you could essentially do a, a reverse lazy 1031 um, as long as it's in that same calendar year. So, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people want to do reverse 1031s and, it, you know, we end up telling them it's like going to be very, very complicated. Um, just the logistics of a reverse 10, 1031 is not fun. So if you are able to take down that property before selling your other property, you have all year to do it if you want to start in January. So, right. And Tom, before we go into some of these alternatives to 1031s, um, you know, I know we already have people thinking, hey, is Thomas or is Thomas's firm taking on new clients for CPAs? One of the hardest referrals we have are, are CPAs that know real estate. And then CPAs in the real estate here taking on clients. So can right. you tell us like a little bit about your about your practice and what type of clients you are or not taking on? Because I know we have a lot of investors out there asking that question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And appreciate the question. So uh, we, uh, we're, we're Hall CPA. We're a firm that's uh, across the United States. We have a lot of clients in Colorado. And what we do is 
uh, we basically work exclusively with real estate investors. Uh, some of our clients have as little as one property and our biggest clients are funds of hundreds and hundreds of properties. So we kind of see everything across the gamut, if you will. Uh, we work with long-term and short-term rental investors. And primarily what we do is uh, we take a little bit of a different approach than a lot of other CPA firms do. So one of the biggest complaints we have from from our clients is that our prior CPA never told us any of this, <laughs> never told us how to use the lazy 1031 exchange or never told us how to do anything to reduce taxes. So we, we take a very proactive approach with our clients and uh, many of our clients start with tax advisory where we're sitting down with them, we're learning about their tax and financial situation, their goals for the future, and giving them a roadmap or a blueprint rather uh, of the strategies that are available to them to reduce their taxes. So that's that's the first way that, that, that we work with clients. Of course, we do do tax preparation, so filing tax returns, and we have clients who outsource their accounting, their bookkeeping to us as well. Um, that, as for are we taking on clients, uh, we are we are always taking on clients, so we're a we're a growing CPA firm, and we have a phenomenal um, recruiting uh, system, a recruiting pipeline to continue adding to our team. We have a lot of accounts who want to work for our firm, so we are always uh, we are always taking on clients. Um, having said that, though, we do have a cutoff for 2023 tax preparation, and that usually comes somewhere around March ish. Where we where we'll stop taking on clients for 2023, and we're then working with them on 2024 and beyond. Uh, so that's a little bit in a nutshell um, how we work. That's awesome. Thank you. All right, let's get into these uh, alternative 1031 strategies because you know we talked about this briefly before we got in the podcast, and you know when interest rates were low, man, it was always no brainer just 1031, sell the house, buy the fourplex, right? That was the the common example we saw and keep trading up. Now with uh, high interest rates and uh, flattening rents, it makes it tougher to 1031 to a 40 or 50% down payment type situation. So what are some alternatives people can do uh, outside like buying another rental property? Right, that's a great question. So uh, the best part about this strategy is that there's other businesses that generate passive losses. So if you're not actively involved in the business, it's typically going to be passive for you. And specifically here, what I'm talking about is uh, partnerships, like limited partnership interests for the most part. So for example, you can go invest in a syndicate, a uh, real estate syndicate, a multifamily or commercial. And while this is still in the rental realm or in the real estate realm, uh, you don't necessarily have to do the work. You have There's usually professional uh, property management, professional sponsors who do this day to day operating the property. And they'll usually do cost segregation studies and then pass the losses back to their investors. So an, one alternative, rather than buying the property yourself, is going and investing in a syndicate or fund who's going to pass the losses back to you. So that's one option. Then there's other asset classes you could look at. One of them is ATM machines, very popular for this exact purpose uh, for the Lazy 1031 Exchange. And that's because ATM machines are five-year property. So the so when you invest in an ATM machine fund, they're all every your entire investment is pretty much eligible for bonus depreciation. Let me clarify. When I say your entire investment, what I mean is um, all of the property that you're buying, pretty much the ATM machines are eligible. So you can get substantial losses passed back uh, from ATM fund machine investments. Same thing oh, with- is that why I've seen so many <laughs> ATM funds? Okay, that I didn't realize. So just the way because they're five year since they're five year um, life cycles or five year vehicles, you can basically depreciate all that in year one. Is that what you're saying? Right. Well, with bonus oh, depreciation okay. so, or with yeah. bonus depreciation. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. 
<laughs> yeah, so there could be quite sizable losses from ATM machines, and they usually pay you. Um, it's you. It usually with ATM machines, it's a cash flow play. So you're making cash flow while you're getting this uh, these large losses in the first few years. Um, now, the next one is car washes, self storage. These are all asset classes that typically generate large losses for you thanks to the depreciation. So those are just some alternatives. Another one is. Um, well, well, we'll maybe get to that in a second. I was going to say mineral rights, but you have to 1031 exchange into them. But those are the ones, if you wanted to use the lazy 1031 exchange method, you go into invest into these other businesses or, or real estate as a limited partner, and they'll be able to generate sizable losses for you. Yeah. So you're uh, to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, you're saying, hey, the same principle, the lazy 1031, sell a property, don't do 1031, and then invest in another asset front low law of depreciation through cost segregation, whether it's a rental, uh, multifamily syndication, or an ATM fund, do a lazy 1031 in that manner across any of those assets, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I'll just throw one 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 thing out there. With the good thing about ATM machines, you don't have to do the cost seg with an ATM machine because it's already identified as five-year property, but oh. um, the principle applies, basically. Okay, that's really cool. Thank you. All right, I do want to talk about mineral rights though, because I've oh, heard people. Can I butt in oh. with one more lazy uh, ten thirty one oh, question? So, Thomas, um, I know the other alternative is if you've been an investor for you know probably many years, um, and, and you've had that day job the whole time. You you know you've never been able to be considered reps. Um, so everyone, I guess that maybe falls into that bucket. They should. You, you know, you mentioned the form 8582. They should really go check out that line item, that suspended passive losses to see if they even need to purchase a, a subsequent asset, right? Um, to wipe out their gains. Oh yeah, that, that's that's a fantastic point. Um, for it, that, That's such an essential form, form 8582, because you might already have a substantial amount of passive losses. You might even have enough passive losses to offset the gain on the property you already sold, and you might not even know it. Mm -hmm. So before you run out and say, oh, I need to go grab a new property and you might want to do that for investment purposes. But if you're just doing it for the tax or primarily for tax, go look at that form 8582 first. It'll be on your prior year tax return. So chances are when you're listening to this, probably going to be your 2022 tax return. I have to imagine. Um, and uh, you go pull up that form, see how much, how many passive losses you still have left. And if it's enough to offset your estimated gain on sale, you might not need to do anything at all and still be able to use the lazy 1031 exchange. Perfect. True. All right. Mineral rights. I am so curious about this. <laughs> Out of everything we've talked about, this is what I know the least amount. And I've had a couple clients do 1031s and mineral rights, and I've just been completely fascinated by it. So explain away, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we've actually uh, dove deep uh, deep into this relatively recently with a, with a gentleman named Troy. But basically, the way it works is when you're when you're doing mineral rights, you're 1031 exchanging into pretty much the land or to the property, and then you're basically selling off the mineral rights or licensing out the mineral rights, for lack of a better word for it, um, where then you're receiving a royalty. So the basically the way it works is you're you're you have your property that you might have been managing. You execute the 1031 exchange. You now have this other property that's basically someone someone else coming and drilling on that property, right? Someone else taking the mineral rights, drilling, say like Exxon, for example, and then just paying you a royalty. 
So it's it, it it's 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 a way to generate a substantial amount of income with basically doing little work because once you 1031 exchange on that property, that mineral rights is going to pay you out sometimes for decades. So it's uh, it, it's it's another alternative that if you can identify, especially if you can identify the property first, even before you're about to sell, it can make it really easy for you to not have to go through the headache of that 1031 exchange timeline or make it make it a lot easier for you. So. For these investments, it sounds like it's a very high cash on cash return, essentially, by right. yeah, buying and selling mineral rights. Are you getting depreciation, debt pay down, or appreciation typically, or is it mostly just cash flow? Yeah, so typically with the mineral rights, you're getting a lot of the cash flow from it. The 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 benefit in it, the benefit of it, you're getting depletion, which is which is it's basically like depreciation, but for the 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 minerals themselves, right? Every time you mine the minerals, you're depleting the mineral source and you get right. basically 15%, uh, 15%, I forgot exactly, exactly uh, how it works off the top of my head, but you're basically going to get 15% deduction of the, from the income that you're generating thanks to the, thanks to depletion. But the real power of this comes from being able to defer your capital gain, uh, into this, uh, from your property using the 1031 exchange into this basically this asset class that you have to do virtually no work on and you're just getting a stream of cash flow. So a lot of people will use this towards the end when they're ready to uh, like retire, essentially. They'll say, you know what, uh, what can I do? Should I use a DST? Should I, should I do something else or can I go into mineral rights? So mineral rights is a great cash flow play for somebody who's ready to pretty much retire. How does that work? So if, if you have you know, a, a piece of land that depletes you know, on that schedule that you mentioned. So let's say at the end of eight years or whatever, it's essentially worthless because all the minerals are gone. What what are typically the next plays at that point? Because um, now you just own like just regular land, right? Or I guess land with holes all over it. Um, I, I didn't know what the next stage uh, uh, would be for that case. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a great that that's a great question. Um, that that's a great question, and to tell you the truth, I don't have the great a great answer for it. Um, okay. what you probably do at that place, what you would want to do with most of these cash flow plays is you you recoup your investment through the cash flow. So, like uh, basically, when at the end, like for example, the ATM machine is very similar. Uh, at the end of the ATM machine funds, like when you're done with the term of your investment, there's no uh, salvage value. There's no residual value. It's zero. But you recouped a substantial return on your investment through the cash flow. So um, I've not gotten that far yet into into the mineral rights to, to say what happens when it's done. But what I would say is that you're going to generate you're going to generate your return on investment through the cash flow. So by the time you get to the end, that the residual value in the property is is not of of major concern if you if you invested in the right type of, if you invest in the right opportunity. So if you're ten thirty oneing from something into that and that then it's essentially useless at the end, you could essentially just leave it be, right? And then you don't have any tax implications. Assuming you're gonna stay alive for the next, you know, however yeah. many years. Um yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And mm-hmm. I, I, I got to be upfront. I don't have a great answer. Sure, sure. I don't have a great answer for that. Okay. Um, one last question on here, and this this might be out of what you know from these deals. I'm curious, like for mineral rights, like what type of cash on cash return do people see? I'm trying to put in like real estate terms. I get, hey, a majority of my investment back will be through cash flow. But do you know is like a 10%, 20% or is that outside of your purview? 
Yeah. So, so from, from, from what I've seen, it's upwards of 20%. So you might be getting wow. the 20%. That's what makes these plays work is that you're, you're, you're getting such a high cash on cash return that the, the residual value of the property at the end is, is not, <laughs> is not a major consequence. It's not, it's like you, you've already made your money through the cash flow. Yeah. This is out. Googling. <laughs> oh, I think I'll be going down some Google rabbit's hole uh, next couple of weeks. This is awesome. Thank you. All right, let's talk about DSTs here because this is a very common question we get from real estate investors, either you know selling and doing 1031 straight away, or sometimes they kind of keep a, a DST in the back pocket for like, hey, my 1031 failed, I'll roll into a DST. So first off, like, can you explain what a DST is, the process of it? I've got a couple of questions I want to pick your brain on about it. Yeah, absolutely. So when you have a 1031 exchange, you have to exchange real property for real property. So it has to be another piece of real estate. And um, that means that if you wanted to 1031 exchange into a syndicate, it's usually not possible. There's a lot of workarounds that are costly from a legal perspective to do. Um, but basically what the DST does is the DST is what the IRS blessed this vehicle, this Delaware statutory trust as a 1031 exchange alternative. So you can take the, well, not alternative, but a vehicle that you can 1031 exchange into. So usually the DST is run by a professional manager or sponsors, they might call it. And they're buying properties like institutional grade properties for the most part, things like Walgreens, or they might buy a Best Buy or a Dollar General, um, things of that nature, or industrial properties in some cases. And what you're doing is you're 1031 exchanging into the DST, and now you own a fraction or a portion of, of this larger property that's operated by a professional property manager and professional manager, asset managers, so that you're not your your hands off at that point. So you basically you've you've taken your asset that you owned and controlled, you 1031 exchanged into this larger asset that you have a fractional ownership in that you no longer control, but you no longer have to manage it. So that's the DST in a nutshell. So with DSTs, I um, I don't know if you have a opinion on here, but like I've never been like I, I love the idea of like, hey, I can 1031 into it, right? Hey, that sounds really good for me. I defer taxes now. But where I've not been super uh, excited about DSTs is the returns have been, you know, on the lower side. And right. I also feel like there's usually heavy fees. Um can you comment on just kind of like the return profile or fee profile if you have if you've seen enough of these deals yourself? Yeah, the returns are pretty low, usually in the single digits, and the fees can be quite uh, quite high. Um, and that's one of the major downsides of the DST is it's just it's not um, it the 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 sponsors to put these things together they do take a fee out of it, and then on top of that, the returns are lower because you're buying these higher high high grade like class A institutional grade assets that don't that don't have a major return it's just a very similar to a syndicator fund you know with a syndicator fund you're usually making a lot of money uh, through a value add strategy where you're buying a property that might have deferred maintenance or might need to be repositioned you're putting a substantial amount of capital into it pushing the asset up its value up and then selling it right so you're making a lot of money typically in these deals off of the appreciation however with a dst uh, you're buying the class a property so it's not much value to be added in the first place and then you have uh is usually a triple net lease so the cash flow is not is not very substantial uh comparatively to other asset classes that you might yeah. be able to invest in and that that's that's where you most people go to dsts because they don't want to manage property anymore and they want the safety 
uh, they want the safety of a class A, like institutional grade asset that they know they'll get their their smaller yield on their smaller cash flow, but uh, they're they're more comfortable that their wealth is safe, like the <laughs> the equity that they accumulated over the years is safe. Yeah, I've the few clients I've had who've done DSTs, they've been more like the older retiree side where they're not so much in growth mode, but uh, like asset preservation, more just income right. mode. Is that generally what you've seen with your clients? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's like that's okay. that's that's pretty much the exact profile for the DST. If you're in growth mode, most people in growth mode don't want to a give up control of their assets uh, to like a sponsor, for example, and then they don't, and also they they want to continue the equity accumulation play. Uh, so this is really the DST is the most appropriate once you've already accumulated. Uh, your your wealth, and now you're looking to kind of just step back from the day to day, and you want to almost preserve your wealth. Okay, great. That, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. What about seven twenty one exchanges? I feel like, at least for me, like I know eighteen months ago, two years ago, I started seeing a lot seven twenty one exchange offerings. Um, can you tell us what those are and tell us how they play into this role of potential ten thirty one like options? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the 721 exchange allows you to contribute a property to a partnership. And when you contribute your property to the partnership, uh, you will receive a partnership interest in exchange for for your contribution of your property. And usually what you're doing is when the 1030 with the 721, you're contributing into a partnership that owns a lot of other properties. So what happens is you contribute your 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 property, you get your partnership interest. Now you're basically invested in a pool of other investments. And when you, this contribution is tax-free, so it's, it's, you're deferring it. It's similar to a 1031 exchange, not quite the same, but similar. And then like, as you start selling off your partnership interests that you, you acquired, that's when you start paying the capital gains tax that you would have paid had you sold your property. So that's kind of the 1031 exchange in a nutshell. Again, just to summarize that you're contributing your property to a partnership you're deferring the capital gains tax, you're getting a partnership interest. And presumably, most in most cases, the, ten, the the partnership you're investing into has a lot of properties. So you're diversifying. Now, these are also known as upreach transactions. So depending on the depending on the entity that or the investment company or investment uh, vehicle that you go with, it you could invest in a, like high grade institutional grade assets, or some some pro some companies have been doing this on a smaller scale recently and you've been able to basically get into a pool of, of diversified assets for example it's one fund that i know they'll accept single family properties into their 721 they'll accept office buildings they'll accept multifamily properties they'll accept a, a diverse array of assets into their into their fund which makes it easy for you to go ahead and and, and contribute to it while also diversifying now uh, for if the way these have traditionally worked in the past is that you'd have to typically 1031 exchange into a larger asset. So for example, uh, most of these op- seven, most of these funds wouldn't accept, they wouldn't accept a single family house, but yeah. they might accept a class A office building. So you might 1031 exchange into a class A office building, perhaps through a DST, that's not uncommon. And then later on that is contributed into the into the fund and they're accepting this larger office building so depending on the opportunity you could find out there you might be able to contribute your property directly to the 721 ex- directly to the partnership right off the bat if they if they'll accept it or sometimes you might have to go through a 720 excuse me a 1031 exchange and then that asset would be then later 
720 when exchanged into the partnership. I love all the workarounds that that investors and professionals come up with so we can minimize the tax burden. And yeah, that's been one of the things that I I got uh, enamored for a bit with 721 Exchange. Like, wow, this looks like an amazing way to go out there and, you know, and kind of like, you know, have your cake and eat it too. But a couple of the ones I saw that did accept like single family rentals directly, um, they often had such like a small buy box criteria. A lot of times like properties like I had or clients that it wouldn't fit the buy box. And I've seen a lot, from my perspective, a lot better opportunities with like, hey, sell that, sell your property on your own and then 1031 into like a bigger asset where they a lot right. of times like we'll have, hey, we have this open for a couple of months. Anyone wants to hop in here, go into here and then we'll then we'll roll it over or whatever the proper term is into the the upreat. Um, I'm curious from the deals you've seen, um, have you seen, it sounds like you've seen a lot more go towards like the bigger asset then be absorbed versus like the single family being directly absorbed by the 721? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's tradition. That's like for the most part, like okay, like ninety percent of what we see. There is this one fund that I'm aware of. Actually, I told them about the seven twenty one exchange. <laughs> like two years later, um, they come back. They open up a fund that now accepts other properties, and they'll accept like single families. They'll they'll accept smaller properties, and then they'll either sell the properties or they'll put debt on the properties. They have different strategies they use to monetize those properties within their portfolio. Um, but I think as, as this information becomes more and more accessible, like typically to find out about a 721 exchange, you'd have to go to an attorney or a really experienced accountant. They'd have to tell you how to do it. And then for you to actually pull it off, you'd usually be a pretty sizable, uh, yeah. a pretty sizable fund or uh, perhaps even a REIT. But now as like this information becomes more and more democratized, I guess you could say, or widespread, uh, you're seeing uh, other funds, you're seeing other funds you starting to utilize the strategy in different ways than we've previously seen it done. Yeah, great explanation. Um, so Thomas, we went through mineral rights, DSTs, 721 exchanges, on top of options for the lazy 1031 of selling and buying a rental and cost saving, selling and buying a fund with heavy depreciation. Any other strategies that you want to leave our listeners before we wrap up for this episode? Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think we covered. I think we covered a lot here today. I mean, there's there's so much that I could go into. Um, I would say it, if you're going to be selling your properties, you definitely want to explore these various options. The sooner uh, that you realize you're going to sell your property or you're contemplating selling your property, the sooner you can explore these strategies. The more flexibility and more options you're likely to have. So I, I would probably just leave it. I'd probably just leave it there. I, I yeah. would say one that's. You know, let's just leave, let's just leave it there. I don't want to go. Yeah, let's just leave it there for today. All right. Well, you're you're leaving the door open for a part two episode. I love it because uh, <laughs> I know we'll get a lot of questions from here, and you know, like the the devils in the details. Um, and to highlight one thing that Thomas said about like, hey, the sooner you start discussing it, the better. Uh, don't be like, hey, I sold my property. Can I do a ten thirty one? No, Jen and I have gotten calls like that. I'm sure <laughs> Thomas has as well. And no, if it's if it's sold, you're kind of you're yeah. out of luck for additional 1031, but you can do a lazy 1031. Mm-hmm. But man, the second you start thinking I might sell a property, uh, start analyzing your opportunity costs for other investments out there. But also, most importantly, sit down and talk with your tax strategist, or if you need one, talk to Thomas and his, uh, you know, his company, and see what your options are on there. And as a friendly disclaimer reminder, you know we are not giving financial, accounting, or legal advice on here. Um, we are just giving you some ideas and strategies. Make sure you talk with your professional team 
or if you need referrals, we're happy to refer you out to them. But we're just sharing education for everyone to go out there and hopefully percolate ideas to go out there and uh, make more money and pay less taxes going forward. So Thomas, thank you so much. And then what is the best way people can find your podcast and also find about your find out about your accounting firm? Yeah, absolutely. So you could find the podcast is on all all basically all podcast platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, the Tax Smart REI podcast. You could just search it, you'll you'll, you'll find it. Um, and then if you want to learn more about our firm, it's it would be therealestatecpa.com slash Thomas. That's my personal page at, over there. And from there, you can learn more about how we work. And if you want to request a consultation, uh, we'd love to learn more about your situation, how we could help. Awesome. Well, Thomas, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and your expertise. And uh, Jenny, as always, amazing job on teeing up a great guest. Another fun show to, to co-host with you. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Thomas, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. If you, have, if you need any help analyzing your options, come talk to us. This is the stuff we do ourselves day in, day out. We're investors ourselves. We also love talking shop. Thanks a lot, everyone. Mm-hmm.